It is good to see you all this morning. Happy Veterans Day weekend. Do we have any veterans in the room? No veterans? Okay, I know we will someday. Um, but anyway, uh, it's good to see you guys. Do we have, uh, by the way, my name is Grant. If you don't know me, I'm uh, one, of the past, one of the pastors now here um, at, at H2O Church. And uh, yeah, I, I, do, do any of you guys like, like uh, courtroom dramas? Like Law and Order, Judge Judy, guys, People's Court, any of those kind of things. Judge Joe Brown, I remember seeing that when I was growing up. I'd go to the barber and they always had Judge Joe Brown on. Um, yeah, it was funny. I was just up in Bowling Green this weekend. And uh, yeah, I, I was a student at Bowling Green and then uh, came down here to help plant this church. But uh, my landlady up at Bowling Green, like half our church lived in the same apartment complex and she always watched like Judge Judy all day long. So we were reminiscing about that, uh, which is kind of appropriate because I'm going to be talking about the trial of Jesus this morning. Uh, so if you've been with us, you know that we've been uh, doing this series called Who Is This Man? And uh, when we say who is this man, we're really talking about who is Jesus? We know that's a big controversial question in our culture today. Uh, it's one of the most significant questions in all of history because Jesus made some extraordinary claims about who he is, and we as Christians make some extraordinary claims about who he is. And so there's a lot of people that believe Jesus existed, uh, but there's, there's oftentimes differing opinions on, on who he was. So what we've done is uh, taken a look at the scriptures, we've let the Bible be our guide, and we've looked at the big events that have happened in Christ's life. And as we've looked at those big events, we've kind of seen different characteristics of who he was. And so today, we're going to look at his trial. And I think that the thing that we see about Jesus, there's several things, uh, but the biggest thing that I think we see about Jesus is that he is unbreakable. Uh, the, the way that Jesus uh, withstands his trial is really incredible. It's really inspiring. Uh, I've always loved uh, these accounts that you get throughout the Gospels about the trial of Jesus. I think it's really interesting. And uh, as a side note, too, just before we dive into our text the, uh, the trial of Jesus, you know there's four Gospels, right? So the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell the story of Jesus. And uh, if you want to learn about the trial of Christ, if you want every detail, you actually have to read all four of those Gospels together. Um, some of the authors put in a little bit more detail than others. Some leave out certain details. None of them contradict each other in any way. Uh, sometimes skeptics will, will try and say those kind of things. They don't contradict each other in any way at all. Um, but just the same way as if you and I were both recounting an event that we were at, I may say a detail that you didn't say, and you may say a detail that I didn't say. It doesn't mean that we're contradicting each other. Uh, but what we will see through all four of the Gospels is, is the big idea is the fact that uh, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was brought before uh, the, the Jewish chief priests and elders. First, they condemned him, saying that he was worthy of death, but they couldn't kill him themselves because they didn't have the power of capital punishment. So then they sent him over to the Romans, uh, where he had a trial before Pilate, and eventually Pilate uh, condemned him to death. So we're going to be looking at that in more detail today. Uh, due to lack of time, I can't go through all four gospel accounts, so we're mainly going to be uh, stationed in Matthew. Uh, it's going to be mainly in Matthew chapter 26, but I will be filling in some details from some of the other gospels every now and then uh, as needed. All right, so let's pray, and then let's ask God to get with us as uh, we dive into the scriptures. Uh, Lord, you're holy. You are awesome. And God, we quiet ourselves before you right now. God, I pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds, Lord, that you would uh, eliminate the distractions that plague us. God, that, that the worries that we came in with, God, even if it's just for this next 40 minutes, whatever it is, 
that you would eliminate those from our minds. God, give us the blessing to be able to focus on you and your word this morning. God, give us the mental stamina that we need, maybe the physical stamina that we need if we didn't get much sleep. Um, Lord, to be able to hear you. God, I pray that you would speak to us clearly this morning, um, that, that you would tell us where to go. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the light that it is to our paths, the lamp it is to our feet. And God, we just pray that you'd be lifted up and exalted this morning. So be with me as I speak. God, use me as your vessel. And uh, just lift your own name up this morning. We love you, God. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to be starting in verse 57. Here we go. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Meanwhile, Peter was following him at a distance, right to the priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting in the temple place to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two who came forward stated, This man said, I can demolish God's sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. The high priest then stood up and said to him, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying about you? But Jesus kept silent. Then the high priest said to him, By the living God, I place you under oath. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, He deserves death. They spit in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Okay, so <clears throat> this is the account of uh, Jesus after he'd been shortly, uh, he'd just been betrayed. This is where he's brought uh, to the chief priests <clears throat> and the elders. Uh, they're at this place, a guy named Caiaphas, who's the high priest, whose house they're at. And uh, one of the things I want to do this morning, since we're kind of looking at a, uh, a court case, so to speak, is I want to do a, a little bit of question and answer. It's, it's not going to be audience participation, don't worry. Um, I've already anticipated all of your questions. But uh, the, the way that I formatted the sermon this morning is just, when you think about a courtroom, what you get a lot of time when you examine the witnesses is... There's a question and an answer, question, answer, question, answer. And so uh, one of the other benefits I think in this is when I preach, I want to not only give you the word of God, but I want to help you learn how to study the word of God yourself, okay? You're the old uh, proverb, give a man a fish, you'll feed him for a day, teach a man a fish, you'll feed him for a lifetime. So when I preach, my hope is, is kind of to both give you a fish and teach you to fish at the same time. Um, and so one of the things I'm hoping we can accomplish this morning, just even as we go through the scripture this way, is I want to teach you how to look at scripture and learn to ask good questions that are going to help you know what's going on more, okay? And then I'm going to answer them for you, so that's kind of the giving the fish, but in showing you how to answer the question, how to ask the questions, I'm teaching you how to fish. So my hope is that this will work out pretty well today. Um, but when I, when I read that scripture, there's a, a lot of questions that, that come to my mind. And when you're in your own Bible study time, I encourage you to do this. Just uh, take a passage of scripture, make as many observations about it as you can. And sometimes you can do that by writing down a lot of really good questions. And so I just have nine big questions that I wrote down here. Some of them uh, easier to answer, some of them harder to answer. 
Uh, but these are all the questions I came up with th- through this passage. First, who is Caiaphas the high priest? Um, second, why was Jesus taken to Caiaphas? Who are the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin? Why were they looking for false testimony? What was Jesus talking about with demolishing and rebuilding God's sanctuary? Why didn't Jesus defend himself? What was Jesus talking about when the, with the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven? Why did the high priest tear his robes and cry, cry blasphemy? Why did they pronounce Jesus to be worthy of death? So we're going to go through these questions one by one. I think this will help you get a much better understanding of the passage. And in the process, I think you're going to get a much better understanding of who Jesus is. And there'll be some application that we can put into our lives here as well. Plus when I make my closing statement at the end. So um, some of you guys got that. Most of you didn't. Uh, okay, so first question. Who is Caiaphas the high priest? So the high priest is in office, and uh, he was kind of the, the most powerful man in the Jewish religion at the time. So when you think about uh, the religion that the Jews practiced, they had a temple, and in that temple there would be sacrifices that were offered, and there was one especially holy day called the Day of Atonement. It was the most important day in the Jewish calendar, and uh, on this day uh, there was a special ceremony that had to happen with the sacrifice of animals and the sprinkling of blood where the high priest would enter into the holiest place of the temple. It was the only time of the year that you were allowed to enter into that, and he would go and he would sprinkle blood in this place, and he would serve uh, kind of as a mediator in some ways between God and man. And so the, the high priest had a very important function in Judaism. These guys uh, were uh, from the lineage of Aaron. So if you think all the way back to Moses, who God gave the law through, his brother's name was Aaron, and the priests were all descendants from there. So the high priest was just the most important of all those priests. Um, so they were kind of continuing in the legacy of Aaron. So Caiaphas, as you can imagine, was an extremely influential person in the Jewish community. Because you also have to remember that uh, with, with the way that Jewish society was structured, their religion was so tied to their ethnicity and their system of law. Now, right now, there are people that are under Roman rule as well, and I'm going to get to that later about kind of how those things play against each other. Uh, but right now, you have to realize, man, Caiaphas is an incredibly powerful figure uh, within Judaism. Uh, we don't really have a comparable thing for it today. Maybe if you were like living in the Vatican and it, he was the Pope, it'd be kind of a, a similar idea for you. But anyway, so, so that, that's our first answer. Who, who is Caiaphas? The next thing, why is it that they took uh, Jesus to Caiaphas' place? Well, from the beginning, Caiaphas was a guy that actually wanted to kill Jesus. If you go back to Matthew uh, chapter 26, you'll see Caiaphas is one of the guys that actually hatches this plan that they have to kill Jesus. And why would he want to do that? Well, remember, Jesus didn't get along very well with the religious authorities of his day. Why? Because the religious authorities of his day were very much into going through ritual. They were very much into having people look at them, having people glorify them, but their hearts were very far from God. And you look all throughout the Gospels, you can see how Jesus is constantly getting into arguments with these guys. And so when Jesus comes along, he threatens their power. They're envious of him. They don't like the way that people are starting to go after him. They don't like the way that people are uh, finding him to be very popular and more influential than they are. And so Caiaphas and a lot of the other religious leaders along with him hatch this plan of, hey, we want to kill this guy. Now, um, so not only is it his idea that they want to to kill Jesus, but it's also important if they're going to do this uh, and to make it legitimate in any way that they need to go and have some sort of a trial that that he is able to stand his head over. If you're a Jew living in this time, you're kind of living under two systems of power. 
You have a, a political power system that's run by Rome, and then you have a religious power system that's run by the, uh, the chief priests and the elders. So Rome had gone and they had conquered the land of Israel, uh, Palestine. They, they ruled over all of this, okay? Now the Romans, though, were really good at conquering people, but they were also really good at ruling their empire. And the reason they were so good at ruling their empire, at least one of them, is because when they would go in and conquer somebody, they actually would let that, that culture stay intact to some degree. As long as those people behaved and paid their taxes and obeyed what Rome told them to do, they would let them maintain a lot of their cultural identity. Okay, so they're, they're not going to go in and get rid of every single leader that these people have. So they were okay with the Jews still having their temple and their priests and all this kind of stuff so long as they continued to pay taxes to Caesar and didn't cause any problems. So that's the, the political power system that you have. Uh, the religious power system I already explained. The, the Jews are very um, aware of God being their king, that's kind of been their legacy. They don't really like the fact that the Romans are rulers over them, but at the same time, they can't really do anything about it because they know that they're not powerful enough uh, to overthrow Rome. Now, they have a problem here because they want to kill Jesus, but they don't have the authority to, to punish uh, for capital punishment, okay? When, when Rome would come in and conquer people, they let them keep a lot of their culture, but one thing they wouldn't do is they wouldn't let anyone else uh, exercise capital punishment. And so the Jews knew, man, if we want to kill this guy, we have to get some sort of charge that we can drum up against him so we can go to Rome and we can get them to crucify him. So it was important for them to come to Caiaphas first to help them out, to, to get a lot of a, a, a crowd stirred up against Jesus to where when they went to the Romans, they would be able to get Pilate to agree to kill him. All right, so our next question, who are the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin? Um, so the Sanhedrin, this is kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court, so to speak. There was, it was made up of 71 uh, religious leaders in Israel, and they would meet every day to judge matters according to the law of God. So when uh, they, they bring this guy before, they bring Jesus before Caiaphas, they also want to say, hey, if we want any sort of legitimacy to charges that we bring against Jesus, we need the Sanhedrin to be the people that pronounce judgment against him. And so they, they rush together, they, they try and get all these guys, and, and they're trying to figure out, man, what is some sort of testimony that we can bring against Jesus to show how he broke the law, all right? And that's our next question. Why is it that they are looking for false testimony. Now, this whole thing is kind of a kangaroo court, right? Like, they already had the verdict in their minds before they heard any testimony at all. Um, the, the whole idea was kill Jesus, let us drum up some way that we can figure out false testimony against him. Um, and so, the, the, the fact of the matter is, they couldn't even do that. As people were coming, uh, they couldn't get two witnesses to even be able to agree on something that Jesus said, as they would bring up false witness after false witness. Now, uh, you have to ask, why is it that they even care about having this trial? If they already knew the verdict, what do they care? Well, one reason is because of the legitimacy, right? If they just go and uh, have a hitman kill Jesus or something like that, then maybe he dies a martyr and his influence doesn't die out. But if they can have the whole Sanhedrin condemn him on the basis of, of testimony brought against him, then maybe they can kill Jesus's legacy. But I think there's another reason too for why they cared about having these false charges brought against him. And it's really disgusting, actually. Um, it's religious hypocrisy at its absolute worst. You see, uh, the reason that they were doing this was so that they could actually murder Jesus according to the law of God, right? Like they had murder in their hearts. They knew from the beginning that they wanted to murder him, but they had to figure out some way that they could look like it on the outside, that they were following God's law. 
So this is what they did. They said, hey, let's figure out how we can get witnesses to come and say that Jesus blasphemed. Because uh, the penalty for blasphemy in the Old Testament was death. But you weren't allowed to just have one person come and say, oh, this guy blasphemed. You had to have multiple witnesses. So Deuteronomy 17, 6 says this, the one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. So when you see what they're doing here, it's like, man, they already know that they want to kill this guy, but they're so religiously hypocritical that they're like, man, let us figure out a way that on the outside we can make it look like we were doing the right thing. Man, like that's, that's really slimy, isn't it? Like as a matter of fact, and you'll see this later too, even as they're going and they're trying to murder Jesus, uh, when they go to Pontius Pilate, they won't enter into his place because they don't want to defile themselves from being able to eat the Passover, even though they're literally about to murder uh, an innocent man. So here's the thing. What they were doing was trying to find ways to keep the letter of the law while actually breaking the spirit of the law. And I have to wonder, it's, it's easy for us to judge them, but I have to wonder if we do the same thing, right? Like sometimes if we twist God's word in ways to make it look like we're able to follow it on the outside, but on the inside, we're completely missing the point of what's going on. This has been done throughout history. Uh, there are people that have used tactics like this to uh, try to oppose the abolition of slavery, uh, or people that have tried to uh, say that the Bible is against interracial marriage, or different things like that, which it, of course, does not say, but they're twisting it because they already have a conclusion that they want, and they're trying to figure out a way to make the scripture agree with that. So we have to ask ourselves, man, when we go to scripture, when we, we come to understand God's word, do we care about what it really has to say to us, or do we come with a, with a, a verdict already in our hearts, and we try to make it say that, with, that thing? If we do, then we're not being much better than the Pharisees. So I, I encourage you, man, as you open up the, the Bible, that you would be people that, that you lay your heart bare before the Lord and you let him change you. Because I guarantee, if you read God's word on a consistent basis, you will be changed. Like, it will challenge you. There is no one I have ever met that opens up the Bible and it says everything that agrees exactly with what they want to do. Like, it just do, it do, it does not happen, Okay. So at, at those times where the Bible rubs against you, where God's word rubs against you, you have to figure out, okay, am I going to try and change God's word to make it in accordance with what I want? Or am I going to change my heart to be in accordance with what God's word says? And if, if you go with option number one, then really you're wasting your time reading the Bible. There's no point in doing it. Uh, but if you go with option number two, be prepared that, that God is going to do some uncomfortable things to you. It'll be better. It'll be good but you need to be ready to change if you're, if you're going to read the Bible. Okay, so as we move on in our court case here, one of the, the testimony, this false testimony that was brought up against Jesus was that he said something about, I'll destroy this sanctuary and then in three days I'll build it again. And um, Mark says that even in this, their, their testimony wasn't consistent. But regardless, they were finally able to find something that people were basically able to agree on that Jesus said. And we actually see this in John chapter 2 at an earlier occasion. Jesus did say, some, say this. He said, uh, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Now, he said this actually when he was outside the temple. It was after he had just cleared a bunch of money changers out of there. And the, the Jewish authorities came there and were like, hey, tell us by whose authority that you're doing this stuff. Because they were mad at him. He's like, Here, give us a sign of your authority. He says, this is the sign of my authority that I'll give you. Destroy the sanctuary. I'll build it up again in three days. 
Now, he was talking about his body, and John's gospel actually specifically says that. But in their minds, they're thinking he's talking about the temple. They're like, it took 46 years to build the temple. How are you going to destroy it and then rebuild it again in three days? And so even there, it's like, okay, he said this. He was misunderstood in what he said. That's fine. This is still not a statement that's worthy of killing somebody, right? And so you have to wonder, why didn't Jesus defend himself? Right? One of the things that you'll see when you read all of the accounts uh, about Christ being on trial is he consistently remains silent. He almost says nothing. There's a, only now, every now and then he says something, and whenever he does, all it does is something that incriminates him more. Right? Uh, we'll, we'll actually see that. So, so we have to ask, why is it that Jesus didn't defend himself? Well, there's, there's two big reasons. The first one um, is that he wasn't trying to get out of his coming death sentence. He wasn't trying to get free. Right? Like, how many criminals are on trial that want the punishment that's coming towards them? Like, that's just, that's weird, right? Pilate actually gets freaked out by this later on. Um, but, but most criminals are, all, are doing everything they can to get out of their accusations, right? I've played mafia with some of you guys. I've seen you when someone accuses you of, of, of killing somebody in the night, right? Uh, you defend yourself. That's what we naturally do. But Jesus sits here and he just remains silent. And I, want, I don't want that to go unnoticed because when you think about everything that Jesus did, a lot of time we talk about what an incredible sacrifice it was that he died for us. But I want you to think about how many opportunities Jesus had to back out of this, right? Like if you go back to what Kyle preached on even last week where, where Jesus is praying there in the garden, he's sweating blood and he's praying, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He chooses not to back out of it there, right? And then the, the high priest, uh, sorry, the, the priest's guards come, they arrest him. Peter cuts off uh, one of the guards' ears, and, and Jesus heals the ear, and he says, hey, don't, don't do that. Don't you know that God could send me 12 legions of angels at my defense if I asked for it? So he chooses not to back out there when he could have. And then he goes on trial, and he's on trial at this bogus kangaroo court that's been put together uh, with the Jews, and, and he could get out of it here, and he chooses not to. And then later, he's going to go on trial before Pilate. And Pilate, and we're going to see this later, is basically begging Jesus for a reason to let him go. He really, really does not want to crucify Jesus. But Jesus chooses not to back out of it. And then you see it on the cross, even. Uh, Jesus is hanging there on the cross, and people are taunting and making fun of him. If you're, if you're the Son of God, come down off of that cross. He chooses not to. This is incredible. Jesus not only chose to die for us, but we as humans taunted and taunted and taunted and gave him opportunity and temptation and temptation to try and back out of what he knew he had to do and he chose not to. Man, what an awesome God that we serve. Right? It's, it's hard enough to do the difficult thing. That's right. And when somebody gives you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to back out of it and you still do it, that's really impressive. And that's why I say that Jesus is unbreakable. Man, he knew that this had to happen, right? Without Jesus going to the cross, there is no gospel. There is no forgiveness of our sins. He knows if I back out of this, even though I'm being wrongfully accused, even though I don't deserve this, if I back out of this, there is no substitution for God's wrath. 
And when Jesus went to the cross, that's exactly what happened. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. Every sin that we have committed, uh, God's giving us the opportunity to put them upon Christ and say, Lord, I know that I am worthy of your punishment, of your wrath, of your judgment, but Jesus has taken it in my place. And because he died on that cross and your wrath was poured out on him, I thank you for that. And the perfect and righteous life that he lived is transferred to me. That's the, that's the story of the gospel, and that's how you can be saved, right? Because we serve a righteous and good and just God, and he promises he's going to punish all sin. And I'll tell you what, that's a good thing. That's part of why you guys love watching those law TV shows, because you want to see someone get justice, right? Our God is a just God, but he's also a loving God, and the only way that those two things work together is that he provided a substitute for his perfect justice, so that he could show us love and forgiving us, but he could show justice and punishing our sin. And that was Christ taking that upon himself. If he backs out of this, there is no substitute, there is no atonement, there is no forgiveness, there is no eternal life. And so that's the number one reason why Jesus stays silent throughout his trial. Something else that's interesting about Jesus' silence, though, is that he's actually fulfilling prophecy. Some of you guys are familiar with this. Uh, One of the coolest passages in the whole Old Testament comes from Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, uh, verse 12. And it's incredible because if you were to isolate this passage, you would probably think that you were reading something out of the New Testament. Like, it is, it's actually creepy how accurately it describes Jesus. And we're not going to read all of it right now, but even if you just go to verse, uh, chapter 53, verse 7, it says this. It's talking about this suffering servant that's bearing our sins and this kind of stuff. And this is what it says about him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. This This is incredible, right? This prophecy is written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ even. Okay, uh, this, is, this was something that Jesus would have already read. This is something that was well read. And here Jesus is perfectly fulfilling things that the prophet Isaiah laid out about who this suffering servant would be that would bear our sins and that by his wounds we would be healed. Some of you know that song. That comes from Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. That comes from the Old Testament. It's crazy. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how incredible that passage is. I really encourage you to go home and to read it. But um, Jesus was almost completely silent on trial. As I said, he did say a couple things. But whenever he did, it was always something that actually only just kind of incriminated him more in the eyes of the people that he was trying. And so finally, the high priest puts him under oath. He says, I I adjure you by the living God. Tell me whether or not you're the Messiah. And and Jesus' response, he doesn't pull any punches. He talks about how you're going to see the Son of Man, which is what he called himself a lot of time, seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus doubles down on what's going on here. So you think I'm going to try and get out of this? I'm going to double down. Yes, you've said it. I am the Messiah. And the next time that you see me, you're going to see me coming in glory. And he's referencing two Old Testament passages here. The first is Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
And Psalm 110 is an incredible psalm. It's actually quoted a lot in the New Testament. And, and, and it's interesting there too, even where it says the, uh, the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. So this is the Father to the Son. Um, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. When Jesus talks about coming at the right hand, this is the psalm that would come to their minds, right? And so if you were to go on and read this psalm and you see this talks about a king who's going to have a kingdom that never ends. And Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. Oh yeah, and if that wasn't enough, uh, look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, because this is uh, the other thing that he referenced in his statement. This is a prophecy from Daniel. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, this God, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. You see, Jesus called himself the Son of Man all the time. It's a reference to this. One like the Son of Man here. And and what do we see again? We see that he is this all-powerful king, that he's going to rule over every people, nation, and language. We see that they are actually serving this king. Uh, so, So once again, this goes back to his divinity, that he has everlasting dominion. His kingdom is not going to be destroyed. Jesus is making it clear that he is the Messiah and that the Messiah is a God king. This is a recorded vision that Daniel had about the second coming of Jesus. And so it's it's incredible to see, right, because Jesus is in about as humble of a position as you could be right now on this trial. He's wrongfully accused. He's been abandoned by all his friends. Everyone in the room wants to kill him. And he's saying, you see me like this right now, but the next time you see me, you're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Seated at the right hand of power. The Jews understood that both of these passages were referring uh, to their future king, their Messiah, their anointed one. And Jesus makes it clear in no uncertain terms that he is that. And so once again, if you think that Jesus is just a good teacher, you disagree with what Jesus' own opinion was of himself. So when Jesus says this, the reaction he gets is very strong, right? I think it's the reaction he wanted. The, The high priest literally gets up and he tears his robes. And he cries that blasphemy happened. You say, why is this guy tearing his, like, this got weird. Why is he tearing his robes? Uh, he didn't work at Chippendales. Um, no, the, 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 the reason that this happened is uh, the tearing of garments was something that would be done oftentimes in times of extreme grief, despair, uh, desperation. Sometimes it would be done in uh, reaction to blasphemy. And the high priest wasn't actually supposed to, to tear his robes, but this, this was something he was considering so bad that he, he goes and he does this. They, they knew what Jesus was saying about himself. And they considered this very clearly to be blasphemy. They didn't need any false prophet. They didn't need any false testimony anymore. And that's why Caiaphas stands up and says, hey, we don't need it. You've all heard it right here. What do you think? This guy, they, they, they understand what Jesus was saying about himself that he's the Messiah, and that he's going to have a kingdom that goes on forever, they think that's blasphemy. And so what, what do they do? They pronounce him worthy of death. And that's our last question for this uh, section. Why did they pronounce Jesus to be worthy of death? Well, this is, if you go to Leviticus 24, 16, I don't have it up there, um, but this is prescribed, the prescribed penalty for blasphemy in the Old Testament. And so once again, we see here, Jesus knows what he's doing in, in the way that he's describing himself. He intended people to see him 
as God in the flesh. He wanted them clearly to know that he was the Messiah. So the, the Jews found themselves with an issue. They either had to believe that he was the Messiah, which none of them did. They already hated him. They were already jealous of him. And so their only option at this point was to kill him because that's what they had to do to follow their law. The problem is, like I said before, uh, that the Romans had come in and controlled their territory and they no longer had the right to execute people. So now they need Roman help. Um, we don't have time to get into the detail about Jesus' trial before Pilate, so I'm just going to have to summarize a lot of it for you. Uh, but basically, after the Jews had, had agreed upon the fact that they thought Jesus was guilty, they go over to Pontius Pilate and they bring Jesus before him, and they tell him that, that hey, you should kill this guy. And uh, Pilate's like, okay, what did he do wrong? They're like, well, we wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't an evildoer. Okay, like, tell me what he did wrong, right? And, and they're not really able to give a, a very good answer to Pilate. Um, so, so Pilate finds himself in this awkward situation because the Jews are absolutely hateful towards Jesus. They say, hey, you've got to crucify this guy. You've got to kill him. He broke our law. Uh, but this, it's all religious matters. And so Pilate, from a political perspective, is sitting here and saying, well, I don't really think that this guy did anything wrong. Like, there's certainly nothing that he did that's worthy of death. And so he's like, I'm going to try and release this guy. He, as a matter of fact, Matthew in 20, uh, 27, 18 explicitly says that Pilate knew that they handed him over because of envy. And so he doesn't want to kill Jesus for no reason, so he decides to try and release Jesus. And his first tactic for this is he had a tradition. Pontius Pilate, by the way, is a governor over Rome. So when Rome would conquer territory, they let a lot of the power system stay in place, but they did want somebody that was overseeing it. And so Pilate was their man that was there supposed to keep order, make sure that people pay their taxes, squelch any sort of rebellions, any of those kind of things. Um, and of course, he has the right to decide cases like this as well. And so uh, one of the things that he did to try and help maintain a good relationship with the Jews there is that he would release a prisoner for them every year at Passover, which was a big festival for them. And so his idea was like, hey, how about this? I'll just say, why don't we release Jesus? Seems like a good guy. Um, and so he brings out, he's like, hey, we should release Jesus. And the crowd, though, doesn't like that idea, right? Because the, mainly the crowd that's there is the one that was brought by the chief priests, the elders, everyone that's connected to this camp that wants to kill Jesus. So they say, no, we don't want you to release Jesus. We want you to release this guy named Barabbas. And Barabbas was actually a robber and a murderer, an insurrectionist, somebody that actually uh, was causing real problems to the Roman Empire. But Pilate's like, okay, whatever, I'll release Barabbas for you. And so now he's still stuck with Jesus on his hands. And in this whole process of when he's trying to release Jesus and he releases Barabbas instead, um, his wife sends him a message. And uh, it's crazy, right? I, I would assume that Pilate has never met Jesus nor is his wife, but his wife told him this, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So Jesus has come to Pilate's wife and, and she realizes that her husband should have nothing to do with killing this guy. Um, but Pilate finds himself in a situation where he just can't seem to get Jesus free, uh, e even though he's getting kind of creeped out at this point. Jesus is being silent before him. Uh, he doesn't know why he's not answering any of this kind of stuff. So he, he, uh, they release Barabbas instead. Pilate goes back in and talks to Jesus again. And uh, uh, John... Uh, gives us a little bit more detail that I want to get into here. But basically, uh, Pilate says, okay, I'll try to appease the crowd. I'll have Jesus beaten. So they mock him. They put a crown of thorns on him. He's all bloody. Bring him out in a robe. And then he's like, hey, look at him. This should be enough. And the crowd's still yelling out, crucify. So we're going to pick up here in John 19, 
verse 6. When the chief priests and the temple police saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he must die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And so, uh, I love what we see going on here. First off, we see Jesus being silent again at, at the hands of a guy that's, that's literally looking for any way he can to release Jesus. He's creeped out by what's going on. He doesn't like the vision his wife had. People are saying he's the son of God. Pilate, who knows, probably superstitious on some level, doesn't really want to get involved in this. Um, but we see a few very clear things here. First off, we see that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus never defends himself against that claim. And for a lot of the other things that he said, we know that he definitely is. But we also see that God is in control, right? Jesus was silent before his accusers. In this situation, it looks like God's not in control, right? Like Pilate thinks he has all the power here. He even brings that up to Jesus. Like, don't you realize that I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus says, you wouldn't have any power over me unless it was given to you from above. Jesus is well aware that even in the, in the situations that look most desperate, that God is in control. And I wonder, are we able to have that same kind of faith in our lives? Do you believe that when everything on the outside looks like it is completely going crazy, like it's a hopeless situation, that God is actually still in control? That he still knows what he's doing? I know that can be hard to believe sometimes, right? I don't think the disciples believed it. It's probably why they scattered. But Jesus knows. He's completely calm before Pilate. And so uh, Jesus was so extraordinary that, that Pilate was getting upset about the fact that he couldn't release him. But he was stuck in a situation here because the Jews were getting ready to riot. They wanted Jesus dead so bad, they're getting ready to riot. And remember, Pilate's number one job is to keep order in this place. So if he lets these people rise up and get angry and they start a riot and start breaking things and killing people, then he's in trouble and he might lose his job. He might even get killed by the emperor. So he realizes that he has to do something to stop this from happening. And so we find ourselves in a situation where Jesus and Pilate actually were in somewhat similar situations here. And I want to show you the, the ways that they had a lot of the same um, choices to make, okay? They, they were both in a spot where they had to make difficult choices. First off, both of them knew the right choice to make. Pilate knew that the right choice was to release Jesus, he was well aware of the fact that he was not guilty of anything. He consistently said that he found no guilt in him, and he knew that Jesus was an innocent man and that it would be wrong to kill him. At the same time, Jesus knows that the right choice for him is to remain silent, to let himself be found guilty, and to go to the cross and die for our sins. They both knew the right choice. Second, they both have a lot to lose by making the right decision, right? If Pilate makes the right decision, he realizes he's probably going to have a riot on his hands. He might lose his own job. He might lose his own life. At the same time, if Jesus makes the right decision, he loses his own life and has to bear the weight of the sin of humanity and the wrath of God on the cross. 
Both uh, would serve the good of another by making the right decision, right? If Pilate makes the right decision, he does good for somebody else. Yeah, it'd be difficult for him, but he'd do good for somebody else. He releases Jesus. This is all from his perspective, right? Don't get too theological on me. Um, from his perspective, he realizes the right, that that would be serving somebody else to release him. Um, whereas at the same time, Jesus realizes if I make the right decision, I'm serving somebody else. Yeah, I'm going to have to go through something difficult, but this is for the good of humanity and for them to be able to be forgiven. Um, both would serve their own interests and comfort by making the wrong decision, right? If Pilate makes the wrong decision, everything kind of goes on as normal. Yeah, he has the blood of an innocent man on his hands, but at least he doesn't have a riot. At least he's not going to get in trouble with Rome. His life becomes easier by choosing to do this. And at the same time, if Jesus makes the wrong decision, he doesn't have to bear the wrath of God. He doesn't have to die on the cross. He has a lot to gain from that. So they're both in a spot where they have a very difficult decision to make. At the end of the day, Pilate makes the wrong choice and Jesus makes the right choice. Pilate, assessing the situation and realizing that his hand is essentially forced, chooses not to sacrifice himself, chooses not to do what's difficult, and hands Jesus over to be crucified. And as he does this, he tries to absolve himself from any guilt. He actually does this kind of pathetic thing. He brings out a bowl and, and washes his hands in front of people. He says, his blood's not on my hands. This is you guys. And the crowd shouts out, yeah, his blood's upon us and our children. But the reality is, Jesus' blood still is on Pilate's hands. And as much as he didn't want to take responsibility for it, a little hand-washing ceremony doesn't do anything to uh, get rid of the fact that he murdered an innocent man. Now, at the same time, look how different Jesus is. While Pilate is trying to excuse himself of the responsibility of something he actually did, what is Jesus about to do? He's about to go take on the responsibility of the sin of all humanity when he didn't deserve it. It's crazy, right? It's the exact opposite. Pilate's getting rid of, trying to get rid of responsibility for something that he should have to bear, and Jesus is taking on the responsibility of bearing something for something that he didn't do. Man, what an awesome Savior we have. Praise the Lord that he chose to do what's right. And we're going to get more into that next week. But here's my closing statement. I see that in the trial of Jesus, that he's unbreakable. He was unwilling to do what was comfortable and what was easy. He was unshaken by ridicule, beatings, and his impending death sentence. He didn't break under any of the pressures and if we want to live in a way that reflects that we are followers of our unbreakable Savior, then I suggest two things to you this morning. First off, may we be people that live fearlessly. Okay? Don't be afraid of this world. It's one of the things that we see. Jesus was not afraid of this world. And that was why Pilate was so confused by him. Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? So what? You don't have any authority except what's given to you by God. Why are we so worried about the things of this world? You know, I, I think that we can live so much more courageously. God has empowered us to be people that live courageously because he's given us a life beyond just this one. We can stop letting fears hold us back. Stop worrying about what other people think. You have the truth and you need to share it with other people. What fears are holding you back right now from following Jesus more faithfully? I guarantee there's something. Every person in this room, I guarantee you have a fear that's holding you back from following Jesus faithfully. What would it take for you to let it go? 
Who are you afraid of that you know that you need to share the gospel with? And if it sounds overbearing, what I'm saying here, then, then I, I, I think that you're missing the point because this is actually a very freeing thing, right? The, the idea of this is not place a burden on you that's so heavy where you realize, man, like, Jesus bore this burden and I have to go bear this burden. Yeah, Jesus did bear an incredible burden for us, but how freeing it is for us to not have to worry about the, the, the court of this world anymore. When we can break free of the opinions of what everyone else thinks about us and say, it doesn't matter because God has, has declared me to be his son, God has declared me to be his daughter, and I'm able to live confidently in that now. And so what if people think I'm a freak? Man, wouldn't it be great to be able to live with that kind of confidence? And so we want to help you with this, man. I, maybe you take a small step Small step. Maybe you go to one of the outreach events we have or, or uh, you talk with a friend in here and you help them hold, account- hold you accountable uh, to telling somebody else about Jesus. Or maybe you sign up for one of the mission trips that we have going on. Whatever. I don't know. Find some small step to start uh, facing your fears and, and letting God start weed that out of your life. And the second thing I encourage you to do is that you live with an eternal perspective. Don't live for this world. Okay, let God shift your priorities. Let him take over the way that you think about your time. Let him take over the way that you think about your money. As cheesy as you might think those bracelets are, those WWJD, that's a really good question to ask yourself, actually. What would Jesus do? Because he always lived with an eternal perspective. He didn't look at the difficulty of the cross and the immediacy of that and say, no, I'm not going to do it. He looked at the glory of eternity and having us with him in eternity and said, yes, it's worth it, I'll do it. And man, there's, there's challenges that we're going to face here where it seems too difficult right now. And we're not going to want to do it. And my question is, are you, are you going to be hindered by what you see right now? Or are you going to look at what the glory is in eternity? Because that will change the way that you live your life. In this world, we desire comfort, but Jesus chose death. Why? Because he was thinking about eternity. And once again, we can start with something small, right? Just start to let God do work in your life here, right? Are you a slave to your money and your possessions? Then start by giving something away. Start by, by giving money to charity. Uh, start by, by grabbing a box on your way out the door and, and giving a gift to, to a kid through Operation Christmas Child. Um, you know, whatever, Just go out and uh, with, with one of the times that we go talk to the homeless and, and give them something, whatever, start, start to let that be weeded out of your life. Just this, this idea that you have to hold so tightly onto the things of this world. And then even thinking, man, like my, my time, my talents, everything I'm doing, what, why am I here? Why are you in college? Have you thought about that? Are you here just because you're it was kind of the thing that you got shuffled into. Have you been thinking about why does God have me on this campus at the University of Cincinnati? There's a reason for it. And I think it's bigger than just to get your engineering degree. And I think that I hope you get your engineering degree. You know why? Because we need Christian engineers. I was just talking to one of my engineer friends about this this weekend. I, I, we need Christians in every sector of the economy that, that are doing great things and that are making a difference for Jesus. But are you thinking that way? Or are you just doing it because you're kind of shuffled through life? Is Jesus a side item? Or do you, are you thinking about every situation that he's put you in? God, why do you have me here? Why do you have me at this campus? What do you want me to do during the years that I'm here? Do you even want me here at all? After I go, where, where, where should I be going? God, what do you want me in the future? Is your life being, it, it, does it revolve around God's will? 
And are the decisions you make, are they in light of eternity? Because, man, we, we have a short period of time on this earth. We don't know how long it is. But it's not long in, compar- in comparison to eternity. And, man, like, may we be people that, that realize that. Let's put more stock in what's going to come later than just in what's coming right now. And if we do that, I guarantee you, your life right now will be more full. It's going to maximize your impact here as well. So, the verdict is in on Jesus. He was hated by this world, but he's coming back to rule over it. Right? As he told them, the next time you see me, I'm going to be coming on the clouds. Jesus is coming back. And I'll tell you, that can either be a really good thing or a really bad thing. Because remember, we serve a just God. And if your sin is not paid for by Jesus, then you're going to face his wrath when he comes back in judgment. But that's not what he wants, right? He didn't, he didn't just die on the cross so that you could reject him. He died on the cross so that you could know him, that you could be united with him. He wants to come back and receive you into his kingdom. And so, man, my, my, my question for you, the verdict is in on Jesus. We already know who he is. We already know what he's done. We already know what he's going to come back and do. The question that remains is what are you going to do about it? Are you going to put your faith in him? For, the, for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have never done that, if you don't know if you've done that, then, then please come talk to me. Come talk to your friend that brought you. Uh, we have people that will be praying in the back. You can talk to them about that. We want to talk to you about knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him. And if, if you have, if you decided, yes, I believe Jesus is my king and my savior, then man, start letting your life reflect that. I'm going to pray and the band can come back up. God, we love you and uh, we just thank you so much for who you are. Uh, We want to lift up your name high this morning. God, we thank you that you are a righteous king. Lord, we thank you that your judgments are always just, Lord, despite the fact that we pervert justice in this world all the time. God, that you don't. God, we thank you for your perfect justice. We thank you for your perfect love. Lord, we thank you for the way that those things met at the cross. God, we, we, uh, just, we want our worship to be pleasing to you this morning. God, if there's, if there's a fear that's holding us back, we pray that you'd reveal it to us this morning and that you'd help us to overcome it in your power, Lord. God, if we're living just for this world, then I, I pray that you would show us that and that we would repent of that and we would turn to live for you. And-